0: Amotilek Haaretz We give thanks to God for bread Our voices rise in song together As our joyful prayer is said Baruch Eloheinu Melech Amozi lekemin Amen Blessed art thou Lord our God King of the universe who brings forth bread from out of the earth Amen Barukata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Bore Pri Hagafen Amen Blessed art thou Lord our God King of the universe who creates the fruit of the vine? Amen.
1: Amazing love that welcomes me, the kindness of mercy that bought with blood wholeheartedly by soul undeserved. God, you're so good, God, you're so good, God, you're so good, you're so good.
2: Buried beneath
1: my shame
2: Your name, yes, I sing for joy when my heart is heavy.
0: Lead me
3: Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Uh, Good to see everyone. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis uh, to chapter 32. Our Torah portion this Shabbat uh, in the Hebrew is Vayishlach and it is the words and he sent. And uh, our portion actually begins... At verse 3 of chapter 32, where it says, Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Just to quickly uh, remind everybody, last Shabbat, uh, that Torah portion covered Jacob's life from the moment that he left. His parents went back to Paramaran. He, he hooked up with his uncle Laban. He worked for him essentially for 20 years. And that's how he was married to uh, Rachel and Leah and, and uh, the two handmaids that they had. And he fathered his family and his children. The only child that is not present at this moment is Benjamin. Benjamin, Rachel will carry Benjamin here very shortly. And later, while they're in the land, Rachel will give birth to Benjamin. of course, it will also bring about her death. Uh, when she gives birth to him. But all of the other children uh, have been born, they've been raised up, and they are part of Jacob's family and the entourage now that's going to be leaving. Now, Jacob didn't leave under, shall we say, the best of terms when he left Laban. In fact, he kind of pre-staged it, and he tried to, like, get away as quickly as he could um, and Laban, uh, essentially, uh, chased him down. And at this point has, uh, come up to this place where he's caught up with him. And Laban, of course, is upset that he's left. Um, and Jacob wants to get the heck out of there, uh, because it's, it's a dead end situation. And besides that, uh, the Lord has told him now it's time to go back to the land. And so he wants to go back to the land as the Lord instructed him. So let me, um, let's, let's begin reading at this first, por- first portion. I want to go through the transition of, of leaving Laban and then having to deal with his brother Esau. Because it's, a, it's a, an incredible moment here in the life of Jacob. And so let's look at this a little closer. Again, beginning at verse 3 of chapter 32. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. And I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and furthermore, he's coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. Now, the reason why these messengers were sent is kind of obvious. 20 years earlier, Jacob had left with Esau threatening to kill him. And Esau had basically pledged that as soon as their father Isaac was dead, he was going to kill him. And to to protect his life and the urging of his parents, he had departed, had gone far enough away that Esau wasn't going to go chase him down at that location. Uh, and now he's returning. And it's and even though it's 20 years later, I'm certain that he's fearful of what is still in Esau's mind, because it's probably still there that he wants to kill his brother, Jacob. So to rather than sneak into the land, and quote, quote, like hide in the land somewhere without Esau finding out, but which eventually Esau would have found out. Why he decided it would be better to send word and send messengers and try to find a way to entreat his brother, find some way to resolve the conflict. And so to do that, you gotta start dialoguing at some level. You gotta start you know, trying to communicate to try to find some kind of a path. And so he sends the messengers to give advance warning to Esau to say, look, I'm coming. Um, You know, the Lord has blessed me. Uh, Can we get together? Can I find favor in your sight is essentially uh, what he said. So when the word comes back from the messengers, oh, yeah, Esau's coming out, but he's got 400 troops with him. That doesn't sound like an honor guard or a negotiating uh, thing. That sounds like a raiding party. And, so of course, Jacob is extremely fearful. He can't go back to Laban. He's got to find some way to go forward. And, and, and he looks like he's walking right into a buzzsaw. So that's the reason why verse says, says Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people who are with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. And um, and Jacob said, O God of my father, Abraham, God of my father, Isaac, O Lord, who did say to me, return to your country and to your relatives that I will pr- prosper you. I am unworthy of all of the loving and kindness and of all of the faithfulness which thou hast shown to thy servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become... Two companies. Right off the bat, I want you to take note of something. Jacob is in a fearful situation and he's distressed. This, this is commanding his attention. It, it, it's, that's how distressful it is. And so the first thing he does is he looks about himself and he says, What can I do about myself to prepare kind of for the worst? And so he comes up with this idea that I will take all of my family, my possessions, my herds, my flocks, my servants, and so forth. I'm going to form two companies. I'm going to form two groups, not one group. And that way, if Esau comes and he wants to slaughter some of them, the other one has a chance to escape. While, while this one's being attacked, this one can escape. And he's, this, is, this is a case of uh, actually that tactic is called soaking off. I don't, know, I don't know if you know, but that's an actual military tactic. It's where you soak off the enemy uh, to, to have to engage one while another group is able to, skip, to escape. By the way, General Lee, in the Civil War, was an expert at this military tactic. And um, where when, the, when the Union was attacking him at Chancellorsville, why he would leave small units... Uh, strategically placed, and they would engage the Union and then back off, but what it did it was it soaked off the Union units to the point where it didn 't make sense for the Union to continue to press the attack because they were engaged with smaller things. more modern is what we call shoot and scoot you know you you engage and you get the heck out of there, but you tie up the other forces well in in the same sort of way, Jacob is trying to figure out a way to delay the efforts of Esau if he's hostile and violent to where that the rest of the family can escape. And that's essentially what he's doing. He's doing that which he's able to do. The second thing that he does is he prays. So I want you to take note of something. This is a case of where Jacob uses very practical things in combination with spiritual things. You know, uh, a lot of people today, spiritually, and I've seen this amongst brethren, when they think about distressful things coming, they don't do both things. They do one or the other. I've seen some brethren who say, oh, we need to prepare. So we'll go prepare and forget about praying to God, forget about asking God's blessing on helping to prepare. We'll just go and we'll solve the whole problem ourselves, and you can't. Or we have people who don't do any preparation whatsoever and say, well, God will have to save me. I'll just pray to God. Jacob doesn't do either of those things. Jacob does what he can do, and he prays. It's a combination there. And I would say, to as a as a practical lesson for those of us who are anticipating the days of the great tribulation, this is a good example of what you do need to do, some practical preparation, and you do need to pray in anticipation for what's going on. Do what you can do. You can't do what you can't do. Do what you can do, just as Jacob did, and pray. And I want you to notice the structure of of Jacob's prayer. He reminds the Lord of what the Lord has said to him. You're the one, Lord, who told me to go back to the land. You're the one who gave me the promise that you would prosper me. Now, rather than being haughty about that, he's reminded the Lord of it. And then he says, Lord, the promise that you've given to me, I didn't deserve it and he's he recognizes God's grace in the promises that God has given to him the blessing that he received that he would cause him to have food and give him clothes and keep him safe and and one day bring him back to the land it's not he's not like arm twisting the lord said so, well you said no i'm reminding you yes lord that you did say that but i also recognize you did that very graciously to me and he, he's praising the Lord for God's grace and promise of deliverance. And so he goes on to say here, um, verse 9, uh, well, excuse me, let me move here. Verse 11, he said, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mothers with the children. I love this part of the prayer, and I wish... I could get um, my brethren sometimes to understand this is the kind of thing the Lord wants us to pray. This is how the Lord wants us to pray to Him. When you're facing a difficult situation um, and it's a a situation you don't like, it's okay to tell the Lord, I'm very uncomfortable with this. I really don't like this Lord. It's okay to tell him that. Um, It's not complaining. You're being honest. You're, You're stating the problem as you see it. Uh, this is a very difficult situation. This is very sad, Lord. I, I wish this had not happened, but it has happened. And Lord, I'm asking you directly, help us out of that situation. Help me with this. Um, in the case of need, you just state the need. Lord, you know, I need $100 and, and you know, I don't have it, and but I need it. Lord, could you help me with this situation? And the Lord response to that. That is, that's the vein of when the Messiah taught us, ask and you will receive. Don't beat around the bush, you know, with the Lord. Be direct and straightforward and honest with the Lord about what the need is. Get on the same page with what the problem is so that you can see how the Lord will assist you and help you and request for his help and aid for it to be done. You're not, you're not dictating how the Lord's going to solve the problem, but you are defining what needs to be done. You're defining what the problem is, and so that there's agreement between you and the Lord as to what your petition and request is. So he very directly says to him, I need your deliverance from the hand of my brother. And also an admission of his heart. I'm afraid of him. I, I admit it. I, I fear him. I fear what he could do. You know, the, the, what, how, how st- I don't know how to stop that. I don't know how to prevent that from happening. You know, so what do we do, Lord? Verse 12, for thou didst say, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. If you remember, Lord, you said that you were going to prosper me and future generations. By the way, these are our children. This would be the conduit to get to those promises, and if the children are all wiped out, if my whole family is destroyed, how do we get to the promise that you've given? And so he's reminding the Lord of his promise, and he's believing the promise. Lord, I'm asking you to keep your good word. By the way, in my own personal prayer experience, this is the most powerful way that you can pray to the Lord. Go to the promises that God has given to you and ask the Lord to remind the Lord of the promise he's given and stand in agreement with that promise and then say, whatever the situation is, Lord, I'm looking for you to fulfill your good word and to fulfill your promise. And generally, you can then begin to get the sense of how the Lord's going to work it out. Those particular people are the specific ones that are going to get delivered and saved because that's part of the promise. Now, I'm not quite sure exactly how this will work out, but I know those are the guys that are going to make it. Um, and, and this is, again, an effort to come to terms with the fear, the distress, and uh, the, the, the great problem that he's having to face. Wouldn't you like to have this one magic wand uh, you know, in your life you know, just sits in a holster here off of your hip. Every time you have something that distresses you or bothers you, uh, you got, every time you have a problem, you just uh, pull that thing out, wave that a couple of times, and put it back in, and the problem goes away. Wouldn't, wouldn't you like to have that? You know, we have it. It's called the Lord. We can take any one of our problems up to the Lord right now, and we can go, Lord, help me with this. We have that. Uh, sometimes we we don't realize we have it, and sometimes we love to clamor in the problem a while, uh, wallow in it. Don't what other what other fine words can I think of that would explain? Sometimes we love the problem, so we get to talk about it, get to talk about it with others, uh, commiserate in it. I, you know, we think maybe there's something to be gained by doing it. Rather than just, let's solve it. Let's just have the problem go away. And I think the Lord prefers us not to mumble or grumble. Just let's, let's take care of the problem and we'll get on about it. Uh, you know, for it. All right. So, um, he makes this prayer. And uh, we're, uh, verse 13. So, he spent the night there and he selected from what he had and with him a present for his brother Esau, now he's going to now put together some kind of emissary, some kind of representation he's going to try to put his best foot forward at the moment that we see Esau, and he comes up with this scheme, which by the way is actually's got a lot of wisdom in it in verse 14, two hundred female goats, twenty male goats, two hundred ewes, twenty rams. 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. And he's going to make this as a gift. Well, let me tell you something right there. There's enough gift there that most families could get a pretty successful ranch and farm going. I mean, you, you, you could start a whole community uh, with, with this, you know, pl- you and many servants, could be served and be well taken care of in the course of this. And so he's going to make this as a gift. Now, the idea behind that is it's real hard for a person to continue to hate a person, to continue to be hostile to a person when suddenly here comes a gift from that person that you dislike and they've given you a gift. I mean, it's like the moment, you know, you're getting ready to have a a very serious argument with someone and all of a sudden flowers arrive. So the, the, the lady we're having the dispute with, she sent you flowers. Now, how do you, how do you maintain that hostile boy? I'm going to tell her. Uh, kind of attitude when, when an expression of kindness and friendship has been given to you. It's real hard to do it. That, that's, what, that's what Proverbs says, a soft answer turns away great wrath. Doing something nice, kind, sweet, you know, it, 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 it takes the pressure down off the hostility and the anger. And so Jacob is employing this technique. Uh, he's sent in messengers to give him advance warning uh, he's divided his family into two companies trying to figure out a way to protect them. He's asked for the Lord's help and now he's going to present a gift you know, that will try to entreat um, Esau as he approached him. Verse 16, And he delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by itself. And he said to his servants, Pass on before me and put a space between droves. And he commanded the one in front saying, When my brother Esau meets you, and ask you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going, and to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say to them, These belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my lord Esau, and behold, he's also behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third, and all those who followed the drove, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, behold, your servant Jacob is also behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Now, there's a little bit more to the logic of what Jacob is putting together here. Uh, The first group, let's say that the first group that he sends up, I'm I'm looking at the first, is a a bunch of goats. He's got 200 female goats and 20 male goats. So he's got a flock of goats. (laughs) almost 200 of them servants. They're bringing them up. And as would be in the ancient times, when you come along and you see somebody, well, you're going to greet that person. You're going to note who they are. You, you know, are you a friend or a foe or whatever the case? And he's coming out with 400 troops. So he's not bashful about approaching anybody and saying, who are you and what are you doing here? And where are you going? And, and things like that. And it's not like, uh, you know, the constitutional limits of, uh, search and seizure that we have here in the country In the old country, it's all about life and death. And so everybody wants to know, who are you? What are you doing here? You know, and so forth. And travelers were at, at, mer- at the mercy of others. And so they would have been cautious and everybody would have been very cautious in, in the whole matter. They could be bandits, um, and so forth. So Esau is going to go up naturally, go up and approach the group and say, what is this? Who is this? Who do you belong to? Where are you coming from? Where are you going to? And all those kinds of things. And he preps them with exactly how he wants them to answer Esau. And he says essentially, oh, these are the flocks that belong to your brother Jacob, your servant Jacob. And this is a gift to my Lord Esau. So Jacob is immediately sending the message, I'm going to humble myself before you. I'm going to elevate you, uh, to appease you, to reach out to you, to try to find a way to be comfortable with you. And by the way, here's a gift. And, And the idea is he says, now Jacob is right behind us. Now why would he say that? Well, Jacob's going to be observing this. He's going to be off at some distance and he's going to watch how... Esau engages them and he's going to be paying attention because if all of a sudden, you know, the sheep come by and all of a sudden Esau says, charge, you know, thinking that Jacob is just beyond. Well, that's a pretty dead giveaway that he's on attack mode and we'll scatter. Okay. But if he waits or just moves a short distance and the next group comes and he doesn't attack because each one is saying, Jacob's right behind us. If he's really intent to harm Jacob, why, well, he would give the signal to charge. And so he's going to do this a couple of times to see how Esau's going to react. If Esau just remains in place and allows each group to come, well, then that's a kind of a physical indicator that maybe, maybe he's not so hostile. Maybe he's willing to receive me as when I approach him. And so he puts this plan in motion that the next day this is all pre-staged. Now, if you'll note that this is the gift that Jacob did, and quite a bit there was quite a bit here, Jacob must have had a whole lot more than this. So he must have had many servants and great numbers of flocks and many animals that that this entire entourage is coming across. It's not just him and his children; it is an entire company of servants and flocks and herds that are that are making their way there and uh, this is quite quite an entourage that's coming in there so it's very important for him to strategically see how Esau is going to deal with all of this as he comes so um That's what the plan is. Verse 21, so the present passed on before him while he himself spent the night in the camp. So he's put them across the river. He's getting ready to send them across so they'll be out in front of him. Verse 22, something happens. Now he arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and 11 children across the fort of the the Yabbok. And he took them, sent them across the stream, and he went, he sent them across whatever he had. Then Jacob was left alone. But then suddenly something happens. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Now, we don't have any introduction as to how did the man shows up. It just suddenly he gets alone, and suddenly he finds himself in a wrestling match with this guy. And it's a wrestling match that's going to go all night long. They're going to be laying grappling with each other and, and uh, so forth. Uh, verse 25, And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the th- socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, "'Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed.' Then Jacob asked him and said, "'Please tell me your name.' And he said, "'Why is it that you ask my name?' And he he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, "'I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved.'" Now, the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over the Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of the thigh in the sinew of the hip. So, we have this uh, Jacob's wrestling match thing. Lots of questions emerge immediately from this. Why in the world was there this wrestling match to begin with? because we do know that this man that he's in the wrestling match with is um quite capable uh and Jacob is is able to hold his own but he he can't necessarily win and the man the other man doesn't seem to want to win either he's just engaging Jacob but as the dawn comes up why he wants to escape he wants to leave when Jacob refuses to do so he touches the sinew of his thigh, and it dislocates his hip, and that's, he's able to successfully disengage from him, and then they have this dialogue. By the way, let me uh, give you some additional facts about this sinew of the thigh. In the actual Hebrew, uh, it's called, uh, you're going to love this, it's called the spoon of the thigh. Now if you take a, a, a regular spoon that you have, and the handle part is like your leg, but the but, and then you have the scoop, you know, that is, and that's like the buttock, that's like the glubius magnus, but on the side of a slender fella, that muscle has a little scoop, a little, and that's that, that's the the spoon of the thigh. the 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 big muscle of the of the buttock is considered to be part of the thigh to the ancients, but it's called the spoon of the thigh. Now, going right down through the center, that on down your leg is the sciatic nerve. You pinch that sciatic nerve, and your legs literally go out from under you. Um, and this verse here, uh, essentially, that's what happened. It wasn't that it wasn't that he took the bone of the femur out of the hip socket. It was that he hit that sciatic nerve to where that that leg didn't work right. You know that he he was limping, Um, and it wouldn't the leg wouldn't function for him because of the nerve being disturbed. Thereby, he hit him in the nerve, and and that's what disabled him uh, from that. Um, so when the scripture says verse 32 therefore to this day the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh which is in the socket of the thigh because he touched the socket of the Jacob's thigh in the sinew this is what we refer to uh, uh, is part of the special koshering process within Jewish kosher Um, at this part of the animal such as a beef you know and so forth A kosher butcher will go in and cut out the sciatic nerve that is in the rump portion of beef and roast. If you get a rump roast and it's been koshered, it's because the butcher has gone in and cut the sciatic nerve out. uh, Because they eat the flesh, but they don't have the sciatic nerve in the tissue anymore. And that's referred to as the koshering of beef or koshering of an animal. Uh, that's part of the koshering process. It's not just the slaughter and the uh, the field dressing the animal properly, vacating the blood and and things like that. It's specifically the co- that you cut out the sciatic nerve, uh, you know, and that's considered part of the koshering process. That comes from this verse. And for those of you who may go or ever have the chance to go to see where a kosher butcher is at, that is. The one difference that you probably didn't know about, uh, it's uh, th- that the butcher also did that service and removed that sciatic nerve from all of that tissue so that you're not being, and it's from, this, it's from this story, it's from this verse, uh, that definition of koshering uh, comes from. Now, the biggest question that we have to ask is, who in the world is this guy he's wrestling with? Uh, and there's a couple of clues that are given to us uh, concerning him. Jacob knows that that person can give him a blessing. And he asks for the blessing. And he also says when he gets done that he gives him a name. And he gives the place and this person the name Peniel. Peniel means the face of God. And he says, for I have seen God face to face, yet I have been preserved. We who are messianic believe this is one of the instances in which the the Messiah was back in the Old Testament period and was interacting uh, uh, with God on behalf of God for the, the patriarchs. We believe it was a wrestling match with the Messiah himself. Um, But let me go one more advanced thought with you um, about this. And this is not necessarily to take anything away from my belief that I think he was wrestling with the Messiah. I just want you to be aware there is another um, explanation of some degree. When you do a study about the throne of God, and when you, for example, gather up Ezekiel's vision of the throne of God, Isaiah's vision of the throne of God, even the Apostle John's vision in Revelation 4 and 5 of the throne of God. When you pull all that stuff together, it becomes very apparent that there's archangels and living creatures and there's different persons associated with it. I'm going to give you the shortened, abbreviated version of what the conclusions are, and they go something like this. That you have the throne of God... Uh, which is the mercy seat, that the cherubim are underneath, they are the burning wheels of the fiery chariot, that you have the seraphim up above, you know, up above the throne, and directly in front of the throne of God stands the angel by the name of Gabriel. Directly to the right is an angel named Michael. One to the left and to the rear is either Uriel or Raphael. And those are archangels that are specifically mentioned, that they are the ones that are uh, surrounding it. But there's another angel that is forward and down, that is, comes into direct contact with men when dealing with men on earth. His name is Peniel. He's an archangel that stands between the face of a man and the face of God. He's referred to as the face of God, but he's actually there to block and protect a man from ever seeing the face of God. Because as you've heard before, if any man sees the face of God, he will surely die. Peniel stands in the way. And so he ha- it, it's like he has the mask of the face of God where you can deal with God, but you're not actually actually looking at the face of God. But Peniel is there to protect you. And peniel means that's as close as you can get to the face of God. And so peniel is specifically as a function to protect a person when they come directly in with the face of God. It is said and taught that when Moses went up on the mountain and that he spent so much time with the Lord, when he came back down, why well, his face glowed, and they had to put a drape over his face because it shined too much. It hurt the eyes of the people. The statement that is made is that was a consequence of Moses spending too much time in front of Peniel. That Peniel was able to protect him. But it, but there was so much light absorbed that, that there was an after effect. And that was because he spent too much time. So here's Jacob confessing. He's the one telling us, I'm dealing with Peniel. Well, what he's really saying is that I got into this match and I was protected from the face of God, but I actually think I was wrestling with God. And if you stop and think about the logic of that, that's part of some of the rationale of why when the Messiah does come into our midst, he has to present himself in a form that's acceptable for us because if we see the face of God, we'll surely die. So in effect, uh, he, he carries out the work, the same work as Peniel. In fact, the Messiah plays the role of a lot of archangels. He plays the role of Michael. He sits at the right hand of the father. He plays the role of Gabriel. It was Gabriel who announced him. Uh, he plays the role of healer, you know, Raphael. He is the light. That's Uriel. In other words, every name for every archangel, the Messiah has a type of work that he does that's consistent with each one of those archangels. So they, all, they all basically point back to the Messiah. So Peniel points back to the Messiah in that it's how you can come into the presence of God, be in God's presence, yet you're not killed because you're dealing with the face of God. And thus, that's the reason why we have this explanation from Jacob about calling the place Peniel, and uh, this particular incident has so much emphasis on that particular thing. Again, that's a very abbreviated teaching uh, on uh, this whole subject we call angelic majesties, so understanding how the archangels work, how they fit within the structure of the heavenly host, and how the Lord is the Lord of hosts, and, and how all of this works um, together. I know that's not enough information to really. Uh, explain everything to everybody, but this this is uh, there, there's this passage of scripture plays into this dramatically into this whole topic and subject of angelic majesties. Before I leave this chapter, um, I want to back up for just a moment. I always mention this when I teach this portion. Uh, one of the greatest um, prophetic messages of the Torah is simply put this way, what happens to the fathers will happen to the descendants. And this story here of Jacob dividing his family into two companies has incredible consequences and incredible uh, implications into what happened to Israel later on in the life of Israel in the land. If you recall in history that after King Solomon, after his death, all of Israel became divided. They became divided into two kingdoms. Uh, The northern kingdom led by Ephraim. The southern kingdom led by Judah. Um, The northern kingdom was referred to by the prophets as being the house of Israel. The southern kingdom was referred to by prophets as the house of Judah. And there was this split from it. Now, if I were to go back and look at this passage in in Genesis 32 and look for the prophetic implications. All I have to do is look at what was the rationale behind Jacob as to why did he divide his family into two companies. It was for the purpose of defending um, his family when they came into contact with the enemy. Israel, through the prophets, through Moses himself, had prophesied to all of Israel that if they did not obey the Lord while they were in the land, that the day was going to come when they would be scattered to their enemies. They would be cast out of the land and they would be scattered. Now, at the same time that God prophesied that, he also said, that this would not be for the purpose of utterly destroying Israel, it would be for a punishment of Israel, that they would not be destroyed, that the day would come when God would bring them back and reunite them together. We call it the prophecies of the restoration of the whole house of Israel. Um, And if the plan is to send Israel into the hands of the enemies, and God doesn't want them all wiped out, although they'll be in the hands of their enemies and suffer, well, then he would follow Jacob's plan and divide Israel into two companies. So that the idea that when the enemy is attacking this element, this other one is able to escape. And when the enemy is attacking here, this other element is able to escape. And essentially, that's exactly what happened historically. God did divide Israel into two companies, the house of Israel, the house of Judah. The house of Israel went into captivity. The house of Judah was preserved. Then later on, the house of Judah went into the hands of their enemies. But the house of Israel, which is already assimilated in the nations, they're not being destroyed. They're being preserved while Judah is going into the hands of the enemies. And eventually, here we are in the last days of this, and we see the spiritual return of the house of Judah has made its way back to the land. And on the lips and on the hearts of all of Israel, is about the restoration of the two houses of Israel, the final redemption. Uh, and, 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 and here we are in the Messianic movement. Most of the people that are in this modern Messianic movement running around the world are not Jews or of Jewish descendants of the house of Judah like me. Most of you come from somewhere else. And just like Joseph's children, who didn't look like the uh, children of, of uh, Jacob or the grandchildren of Jacob, they look like Egyptians, they look like the people of the land where they were at most of us you look around and we look like the people of the land, even me even with the house of Judah I look more English than anything I'm fair haired, blue eyes you know, I sneeze when I walk into the bright sunshine, I'm English <laughs> you know the uh, um, and, and, and we're all part of the nations, you know, just like what the Lord had said. Moses had prophesied this. The prophets prophesied this. This was what's going on. And to me, this is one of the most powerful pieces of testimony that we have about this principle, about what happens to the fathers will happen to the descendants. Here's Jacob dividing his family into two companies. What did God do with all of Israel when he sent us into the hands of our enemies? He divided us into two companies. Two kingdoms, two, two houses. But they came back together again. When they came to the land, and Jacob is going to come back to the land now, they're all going to come back. We're not going to be talking about two companies anymore. That was only to deal with the enemies, being scattered in front of the enemies. The day is going to come when the time of the Gentiles is over. It's been fulfilled. We're no longer dealing with the enemies that are scattered in the nations. We come back to the land, and we'll all be reunited again. So that's the pattern. That's, that's the picture. And we see in the life of Jacob and his family, it's being modeled uh, for us, for what we have. So now let's have Jacob finally hook up with and meet Esau, chapter 33. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids, and he put the maids and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. I want you to take note of this. He only named one of his sons, Joseph. And Joseph is representative of what? To us, Ephraim. The house of Ephraim. See, the house of Ephraim, according to the plan, is the last one to come. All the other children and come. But Joseph is the last one to come. That's Joseph's children. That's Ephraim. The house of Ephraim is the last one to come. The last one to be joined. And so that's the pattern of the whole two-house teaching that we see. And it's modeled in how they meet and hook up. Verse 3. But he himself passed on ahead them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And at this point, it sounds like a joyous reunion. I mean, it's kind of like one of those Hollywood things. You know, they're starting off on this angle of the field, starting off here and. And they're running toward each other and they're going to embrace and they're going to kiss and, and, and it's going to be this incredible reunion scene. Of course, along the way, Jacob's, you know, bound seven times, you know, to, to get there. Um, that, that's the only one difference. Uh, but they get together and he kissed them. Now, this is where we have something fascinating that takes place in the scripture. And in fact, this is the first instance we see of this. Uh, in verse 4, above the word kissed the actual Hebrew word there has six letters and the scribes do something very interesting with that word above each letter they put a dot a dot or a jot is put above each letter, this is the first of four instances that will happen in the Torah where the scribes put the jots in the Torah. Uh, If you recall Yeshua in Matthew chapter 5 when he was making his argument that the Torah does not go away just because I the Messiah have showed up. He said think not that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets not come to abolish but to fulfill or fill it up full of meaning essentially what he said. And he said not a jot nor a tittle will pass away until all is accomplished. Now, I'm telling you right now, the average Christian has absolutely no idea what jot and a tittle is, okay? In seminaries, they think it's a a stroke of a pen or a small letter. And in fact, some translations try to say, uh, not a stroke of a pen or, or an iota, the smallest Greek letter will be passed away. That's not at all what it's talking about. It's not talking about letters. It's talking about an actual physical jot of ink has been put there by the scribes. It's a scribal mark for a very specific reason. And there is a very specific teaching that goes with verse 4 at the word kissed. The teaching specifically is that these jots represent the points of the teeth of Esau. Because while we see Esau being gathered and embracing his brother Jacob, and it appears to be a scene of greeting and welcome and reunion, in truth of fact, it's revealing that in the heart of Esau, he wanted to bite Jacob on the neck and kill him. That's what he wanted to do. But because of circumstances, he had to play out this role of reunion and greeting. Because from this point forward, Esau will be terrible toward Jacob. And his descendants will be terrible toward Jacob. And in fact, in what follows in the rest of this chapter is a long, drawn-out negotiation in which that Esau is trying to get Jacob to go with him, be with him, I'll go with you. And Jacob's is doing everything he can to get disconnected from Esau and saying, no, no, I can't follow you. You can't lead me. No, I don't need any of your guys to stay here with me. Look, we're, we're okay. By the way, you need to go ahead and press on. Um, we need to go at the pace of the children and the flocks, you know, that they go and we'll just slow you down. And it, it, all of these are reasons to get Jacob separated from Esau because that's exactly what Jacob wants to do. And that's what Jacob needs to do is to get some separation between him and Esau because um, Esau appears to be one thing, but deep in his heart, it's hatred uh, toward him. This is a core. This is at the very core of the conflict between Esau and Jacob and their descendants that will follow. In fact, In the very last chapter of our portion here, uh, we're going to hear all about the descendants of Esau. In fact, I believe it's uh, here in chapter 36. In chapter 36, the whole chapter is dedicated to telling you who are the descendants of, of Esau. And if you look a little bit further in there, you're going to find out that one of the descendants is a guy named Amalek. And in the days of Moses, you know, Moses will have to give a commandment for the Lord that the the children of Israel, the sons of Israel, are to kill the sons of Amalek in every generation. And Amalek, uh, you know, is also, we believe, has something to do with the heritage of Haman in the book of Esther, you know, who wanted to kill all the Jews. And we believe that Amalek is one of the ancestors that traces to Hitler and every tyrant that has ever been in the world that hates Israel may have some lineage that goes back to Esau in some form or fashion. That Esau and his descendants are this perpetual nemesis and enemy for generations to, for Jacob and for his descendants uh, because of this. Uh, today, uh, the only way you can really make sense of the logic of the violence is to know this ancient story this conflict between jacob and esau and and then when all of a sudden you see the mindless illogical violent behavior of the palestinians and you go esau you go oh i got it i i i I understand what you're saying it it makes sense Uh, there's there is no true cause and effect between Esau and Jacob. This is a spiritual battle. Who gets the blessing? And Jacob gets the blessing. Right now, the Palestinians are in this death struggle with Israel. Who gets to have the Temple Mount? Them or or the descendants of Jacob? And they, they don't even use it like the way it was, but they don't want the Jews to have it. And that, that, that hostile logic, that, that craziness, um, where it's very hard to understand there's no reasonable cause and effect here uh, that, that, that justifies this kind of hostility, this kind of violence, this, this kind of madness. Well, it does, if you understand the conflict originating with Jacob and Esau, it makes perfect sense. And... Um, you know, I have always uh, made this uh, statement with regard to how do we win the war against terror? By the way, that subject is being asked quite frequently these days by various people, you know, it, candidates for president are being, asked, well, how, how would you, how would you win this war against terror? How, how would you defeat ISIS and all that kind of stuff? And if I was a guy and I had to answer that question, let me just, I'll just tell you real quickly how I would attempt to answer that question. I would say, you must defeat what the enemy believes in. If you don't defeat what they believe in, they will just go from the next generation to the next generation and go to, you see, you got to resolve this religious war first. And by the way, the Muslims know they're in a religious war. It's the Western nations that just don't want to play. And so they keep ignoring. And in the meantime, Westerners keep dying and keep getting hurt because they keep coming over at them because they're in a full-blown uh, religious war. And this is fundamentally why they're absolutely at odds with Israel. Israel, even though they're being unfaithful, they still represent the God of Israel. They represent the promises of of the God of Israel, they're in the land that was promised by them. They they're been preserved because of the God of, of that they believe in, or that that is their God. And by the way, the Palestinians and the entire Muslim world knows this, and that's the real rub. It's it's it's, it's does Esau get the blessing or does Jacob get the blessing? You know, and whose whose God is bigger? Now, what Esau wants to do is distort what has taken place, and he wants to lay claim to God and put him, you know, put him define him the way he wants to. Jacob is, is doing what he does, and there's the conflict. It's, it's a religious war. It's, a, it's about whose God is bigger. And that's the reason why every time a Muslim gets in any kind of combat or attack and so forth, they're screaming out, the testimony of their God is greater, their God is bigger. It's, make no mistake about it. It's a religious war. And until you prove to them that Allah is not the one true God, and until you convince them not to believe in him anymore, you can't stop the ideology. You can't stop the source that it motivates them to willfully give up their lives in a suicide attack and harm other people. You can't, you you have to defeat what they believe in. And as long as we're never going to call them radical Islamists, and we're never going to get to the next step of the thing, which is they got a false god. We're never going to defeat them. You want to know why we won in World War II? We defeated the Germans because we convinced the Germans that the Fuhrer was not their messiah we can we defeated the japanese because we convinced them that the emperor was not a god we convinced we, we destroyed what they believed in then they reverted back to being human beings like the rest of us and we were able to find peace but since that time we've not defeated the ideology of what people believe in we've just had police actions and this this battle and that battle and 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 for the American culture, you know, we don't want to endorse any religion. We want to have freedom from religion. So we can't fight a, a we can't even let our own soldiers call upon the name of the Lord in battle. Because of <coughs> separation of church and state. Did you hear about the president's latest thing about, uh, and by the way, I'm not, you know, don't misunderstand me. But he refused to let the VA center have any Christmas trees and and nobody in the VA center can say to the veterans, Merry Christmas to him. It's too religious. Now, I don't know if you've seen the pictures yet, but the White House is full of Christmas trees. So why does he have them there? And he won't allow anybody else. Because it's all fake. It's a facade. He has to appear that way. Or else the American people would just flat turn on him. It would be too obvious, you know. It, you know he's a he's a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. He's got to look like one of the sheep, you know, to maintain his position, and he has to look Christian so that he can get elected. If he'd come in and, and said, "Hey, I'm a proud Muslim," so he would not have been elected, and he knows it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um. But if you listen to his rhetoric, uh, there is no question, he's not in favor of Christian things or Christian people. He does not promote the praise of God, as you and I, as a Christian, would think of in terms. In fact, the only time he ever praises any religion is he praises Islam and Muslims. I'm telling you, his words and his deeds betray him, you know? And uh, people around here in the nation, they're, they're smart enough to see through that, it out. We just—they out. They just can't seem to figure out a way to actually prove that, uh, you know, because everybody's willing to take him at his word. Well, the, the moment that everybody finally agrees he's a liar, well, then that won't work. But we're still, that's still pending. Now, the reason I uh, drifted off onto that is that also characterizes the life of Esau. Esau will go through his generations and so forth. And that will be the struggle that that um, Israel will have. And in fact, the Lord will demand that when Israel comes back to come into the land with Mo- after Moses has led them through the wilderness, they're commanded not to make any agreement with the inhabitants of the land. Why? Why would the Lord say don't make any agreements with the inhabitants of the land? Because... None of those agreements will be honored by them. All they're going to do is use the agreement to set you up. The last agreement of the ages that Israel is supposed to be involved with has spoken to us in Isaiah 28. It's called the covenant with death. And this will be the last one that's formed with Israel, with the nations, with the inhabitants of the land. By the way, in 1993, we saw the agreement. It's called the Middle East Peace Agreement. And Isaiah 28, the Lord said that he would annul that agreement. It's a covenant with death. It won't work. And when you annul something, <clears throat> you just, it's like you, you render it in such a way that there never was agreement to begin with. Right now, as we speak, that agreement has been completely annulled. The Palestinians don't honor it. Israel doesn't honor it. The nations don't honor it that agreement has truly been annulled this is the only state and time in which that israel can actually have any chance of being safe and secure the moment they get into an agreement with the inhabitants of the land it becomes harmful and hurtful to them it's like making an agreement with esau this is not going to work out this will be it will be exploited and used to the harm of israel which is what has happened Historically, in the pack, throughout all of the Bible, so we have um, we have Jacob has now returned to the land uh, with his family. They've been reunited. He's confronted Esau. Esau has accepted the gift, has moseyed on. He's he's left. He's got separated. So we're past that incredible hurdle of getting back in the land. At least Esau's not chasing me down to kill me. And he then begins to make his way further um, into the land. I want to take you to uh, this where he journeys. And here at the end of chapter 33, it says, um, verse 16, So Esau returned that day to his way to Seir, and Jacob journeyed to Sukkot, and built for himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the place was called Sukkot. Sukkot, as you all know, means huts or booths, temporary dwellings, and so forth. Now, I want you to take note of this. Jacob has been away from the land for a while, and the Lord has prospered him and increased him. And he's told him, now it's time for you to go back to the land to receive the rest of the promise, the fulfillment of the promises. So he journeys back. He goes through this conflict. And where's the first place he camps at? Sukkot. Uh, if you remember the, the exodus out of Egypt, the children of Israel are in Egypt. They go through this great conflict with Pharaoh. OK? They're going to make the journey to the promised land. Where's the first place they camp? Sukkot. When well, then Moses institutes a, a holiday for future generations that we'll remember what it's like to be on the journey to go to the promised land, and that we'll remember that the first camping place is called Sukkot, the first place that we camp, that we make set up this temporary dwellings. And so we have a feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, has been commemorated, getting us to remember what is the pattern of how God has brought his people to the promised land in the past. So that when we come to the greater exodus, you'll have a sense of where's the first camping place at the greater exodus. Sukkot. That's the pattern. That's what the Lord has done in the past. That's what he was teaching. That's what he's been showing. Therefore, he's he's used what has happened to the fathers to show what will happen to the descendants. Again, another one of those wonderful patterns we find here in the book of Genesis in dealing with the um, fathers that speaks to implications for us today. We are in the midst today of the two houses still being split. We're looking for Joseph to return, the house of Ephraim to return. We're talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. We're talking about the final generation. We're talking about the final restoration. God's promises to bring us all back, take us to the promised land. We're looking for the Messiah to return, who's the one that's supposed to lead us to go in there. You know, the one we had the big wrestling match with earlier. You know, it, it, it all it's all coming together. And we're at the, at the back end of where, where all of the pieces all come together. It is you and I that's in our best interest to understand these ancient stories because it's telling us where we're going and what is the rationale behind and why do we have the conflict with Esau and why, why do we have the things that are happening and, and how is this all working out. And, and, and I would hope that some of this will instill within you, it does for me, confidence in the Lord. The Lord's got a plan here. The Lord's been working this plan for a long time through multiple generations. We're part of the plan. You know, let's get on board with the plan. Let's not uh, be ignorant of the plan. Let's not be unaware of what the Lord has been doing in His faithfulness. Let's believe in that same God and let's let's cling and hold to His faithfulness. As I shared with you uh, a couple of weeks ago, Jacob's prayer uh, in which that... Uh, You know, he called upon God to give me food to eat and clothes to wear and bring me safely back to this place. And the Lord promised him, I'll be with you wherever you go. And and I will bring you back to this place and I will care for you and and so forth. You know, we're laying claim to that. We're laying claim to all of these other things that will bring us to the end of the ages as well. Now, the remainder part of this portion, um, it deals with their visit to and where they live near Shechem. Um, and, and the story goes that Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, um, is attacked and raped uh, by the prince of Shechem, the son of the king. And he wants to marry her. And, and in the course of the negotiation, why well, the brothers come along and insist they all have to be circumcised to, to be able to be intermarry. And in the course of them agreeing to circumcision three days later, Uh, Levi and Simeon go in and slay the men of Shechem uh, when they're essentially defenseless. Um, And they have to then move away from there. Jacob says that you've made us odious to to all the peoples around, so they have to move from there. But um, they're able to rout the city of Shechem. Uh, The one thing I need to mention to you is Shechem's going to play a very important future role with Joseph. And in fact, the tomb of Joseph is actually in Shechem, uh, in the modern city of Nablus that we hear today. Shechem means shoulders. And Shechem actually is a city that's in between two mountains. And there's a, there's a mountain over here called Mount Gerizim, and there's another mountain called Mount Ebal. Moses will use those two mountains to place the blessings on the land, and the curses on the land. This is a very historically significant place. This is where Joseph's tomb is actually at, and much of the consternation in the northern part of Israel that has to do with the Palestinians and so forth is focused right there. That's where the problem usually is at. So, again, another evidence of the conflict that is here will make its way into the future and become the stage for future conflicts. All right, that's our portion for this Shabbat. Again, I hope that you have um, a wonderful Thanksgiving weekend and that you've enjoyed your, your Sabbath uh, as a part of that. Let's pray, and then um, we'll turn it over to prayer. Father, thank you for this Torah portion, and thank you, Lord, for the life of Jacob and for his children and their return to the land. Many lessons, Lord, from here wrestling with you, Lord, uh, dealing with Esau, uh, dealing with Shechem and all that has come forth since that time. We ask, Lord, that you'd make it wise under the Torah, wise under these lessons and stories so that we would see the context and purpose and meaning direction for our own lives. And I thank you, Lord, for these Torah stories. I thank you, Lord, for the vision that they give us, the explanation they give us, the insight they give us into our own lives. And I thank you for your word, your word, the word of God, and especially for our redemption, the living word of God. Thank you for all your promises, Lord, and how you keep us and sustain us. And as we rest on this Sabbath, Lord, Look down upon us with kindness and mercy, Lord, and do good to our brethren wherever they're at. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat shalom.